start out with a little story. Back in 1970 in September, Charles Schultz penned or drew a little cartoon, and you, many of you know him, uh, know about him. He wrote a little cartoon called Peanuts. And in Peanuts, had a, it was a scene of where the teacher was in class on the first day of school, and one of the characters is Linus. And Linus was in school, and the teacher asked the students to write an essay of, uh, about returning to school after summer vacation. So here's what Linus wrote as he began writing his little essay. He says, no one can deny the joys of summer vacation with its days of warmth and freedom. It must be admitted, however, that the true joy lies in returning to our halls of learning. Is not life itself a learning process? Do we not mature according to our learning? Do not each of us desire that he, and he continues on in his bloviated commentary. Then he turns his paper into the teacher and the teacher reads it and she looks quite pleased and she looks back and she tells Linus so. And she says, why thank, thank you, ma'am. I'm glad you liked it. And sitting right behind him was Charlie Brown. And he leans back to Charlie Brown and he whispers, as years go by, you learn what sells. <clears throat> so all too often, people learn what sells. Instead of telling the truth, they say only what will put them in the best light. So how is, should we as Christians live in this culture that we live in? A culture that, re that regards truth as relative. Jesus says, don't swear. Just speak the truth. But in order to do that, we must be totally submitted and sold out to our Lord Jesus Christ. Within the last year or two, I'm not sure how long it's been, even in the White House in this United States of America, there was an advisor to the president who coined the term alternative facts in regards to a false statement that was made by a now former press secretary to the president. This advisor was commenting on something that press secretary said and called it alternative facts. Alternative facts? What is that? It's a fancy name for a lie. Another name for a lie. But it sounded better than it's alternative facts. That's the world we live in. So what about integrity in our speaking? What can you do in a culture that regards truth as relative? If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. So in the last number of messages that I've shared, I've talked about, I've gone through the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. And then Jesus took six important Old Testament laws and he interpreted them for his people in light of the new life that he came to give. He made a fundamental change without altering God's standards. He dealt with attitudes and intents of the heart, not simply the externals, the external actions. So he first started with this of the six. The first one we talked about was murder. Then we talked about adultery, we talked about divorce. Today, we're gonna to talk about oaths. And then in coming two more, there's one on retaliation and loving others. But today we're going to look at number four, that of swearing of oaths. 
Now, our text again is Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37, and I'm going to have us read together on the slides. And what I'd like you to do is the, the verses in white, I would like you all to read out loud, and I'll read the ones in yellow. Okay, so start together. Here we go. Again, you have heard But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. So, are you, am I, a man or woman of our word? When you say yes or no, do people take it as gospel or, in other words, truth? Or are you someone who is questioned unless, you're, unless you confirm what you say with some sort of an oath? And there are many different types of phrases or things that are said that could be classified as an oath. I'm not going to go through all those different examples, but do you have to say something besides yes or no to make it stick, so to speak, or make somebody try to, you, or you think that they would, they would believe you? In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus dealt with the issue of swearing oaths, having integrity or sincerity in our speech and our conversations. Undoubtedly, he set a very high standard for his disciples to follow. It was a standard that exceeded that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and it also exceeds the standard followed by many people today here in our, in our culture. So in this message that I'm calling Sincerely Speaking, I wanna consider what Jesus taught from the viewpoint of four questions. One, what did the law of Moses actually teach concerning the swearing of oaths? So we wanna take a look back into the Old Testament, look at the law, what did Moses actually teach about swearing of oaths? Secondly, how had the Jews, and in particular the scribes and the Pharisees, traditionally interpreted and applied the law? That moves us up into the time of Christ then and, and the early church there. What, what the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, how did, they, how did they see swearing of oaths? Thirdly, what did Jesus teach in response to his abuse of the law concerning oaths? This, not his, what did Jesus teach in response to this abuse of the law? And then fourthly, did Jesus even forbid those oaths made in court or legal oaths? Today, you might say legal oaths. Okay, so first of all, we want to look back at the law of Moses. And as I read these verses and talk in this section here, put yourself back in that time, okay? This is back in Old Testament days. There's three verses of three passages that I'd like to uh, share with you that make very clear the teaching of what the law said about swearing oaths. First one is Leviticus 19 and verse 12. It says, and you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of the Lord of your, the name of your God. I am the Lord. So do not use God's name in vain. That's the very, is that not the first of the 10 commandments? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. 
Numbers 30, verse 2 is the second one. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Thirdly, Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it will be sent to you. So the emphasis, if you look at these three verses, I think the emphasis here is that of truthfulness and faithfulness. Truthfulness and faithfulness. A person must be truthful when he swears the oath. He must truly mean it. He must also be faithful in keeping the oath. Carry out his word. This emphasis on truthfulness in the heart was stressed by the Psalms in the Psalms, the Psalm writers, and also in some of the prophets. So first of all, in the Psalms, in, in Psalm 15 and verses one and two, it says, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. Emphasis on truthfulness in the heart. Psalm 24, verses three and four. Who may ascend unto the, into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. Moving on to some prophets, Old Testament prophets. They bemoaned the fact that there, that, that there was lack of truth in, in the heart of, the, of people as they swore. Jeremiah 5, 1 and 2. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, that's the oath, surely they swear falsely. So he's bemoaning the fact that there's not truthfulness. Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. This is the Old Testament. This is the what the law of Moses was talking about. And this is what we just read then. Uh, some of the laments, you might say, from the prophets of what was happening. Vows to the Lord need to be kept, and truthfulness in all things was expected. This leads us to our second question. How had the Jews, in particular, the scribes and Pharisees, traditionally interpreted and applied the law? Well, it appears the emphasis kind of shifted from the Old Testament days to the days where the, when the scribes and the Pharisees, this time when Jesus was there, from truthfulness in all things to honoring only those vows sworn to the Lord. This is kind of implied and in Matthew, in our, in our text today, Matthew 5, 34 through 36. I'll reread those and just follow along again. But I say to you, do not swear at all. This is Jesus, neither by heaven, and here's the, here's the implica implications. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head because you cannot make one hair white or black. They thought in application, they thought that only the vows 
quotes, to the Lord were binding. They made, the Jews made arbitrary distinctions between their vows. And that's, you can see that here in Matthew 23, verses 16 through 19. Again, Jesus speaking to these people. He says, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by my by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the, or the altar that sanctifies the gift? So they are uh, making arbitrary distinctions between their vows. Because of these distinctions, daily conversations were often spiced with meaningless oaths to make impressions. Sometimes that's happening today, isn't it? We pitch in a lot of extra words, and it spices it up, we think. But it can be meaningless. It can actually be untruthful. So we must be careful with our speech. I'm speaking to myself as well. Folks, I don't stand here today saying or claiming that I have this all together. I do not. Uh, studying things like this helps to bring it around again to me to be more mindful of my speech and what I have to say. So I just want to share that from God's word, that we need to be careful about our speech. So they had, they wanted to spice up their oaths. I swear by heaven. I swear by the throne of God. I swear by the earth or by Jerusalem, by the altar, by the temple or by my head. They would, they would do those swearings. Promises were made. The promises were not kept. made a distinction between those kinds of swearings versus swearing, I swear to God. And then, then those things were more important to them and they, they were supposed to keep those oaths. Paul Little, in a sermon on affirming the will of God, said he knew of a young lady who had signed a contract to teach school in a, in a Christian school. In August, she received another offer from a school that was closer to where she wanted to live. And so she broke the original contract. The department chairman in the first school said that her justification was, I have a piece about it. And then he commented rather sardonically, isn't that lovely? She's got the piece and I've got the pieces. You know, that young lady broke her word. She had signed a contract, she gave her word and then she broke it. And she felt justified saying that God had given her peace about it. No, it wasn't God that gave her peace about it. She did what was outside of the will of God. All right, shifting emphasis from truthfulness to honoring only those vows made to the Lord. The Pharisees in their application of the law justified the use of meaningless vows or oaths. So let's look at our third question. What did Jesus teach in response to this abuse of the law concerning oaths? What did he have to say about it? Matthew 23, continuing on from the verses that's on there now, starting in verses 20 through 22, it says, Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. Who's that? 
God. And who, who swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. In Matthew 5, again, our text, uh, I'm not going to reread these verses, but you can read them if you like. Uh, in our text verses, we read that heaven is the throne of God. Earth is his footstool. Only God can change our hair color, unless you go to Walmart and get some hair coloring dye. But God makes our hair white or black. Therefore, any oath is an oath to the Lord. Jesus emphasizes truthfulness in the heart. He says, let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. Any more than this is evil, he says, and would be contrary to speaking truth in the heart. Again, I shared these before, but Psalm 15, verses 1 and 2, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle, who may dwell in your holy hill, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. We need to speak the truth in love as well. I, uh, I, Luke brought that out in his devotional. He talked about speaking truth in our heart. And it's important. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 14b through 16, that we need to put away cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Do you realize... Even when you lie to spare people pain, the truth eventually comes out and then it usually ends up causing more pain. Now, I don't think we have to be brutally honest, but I do think we need to speak the truth in love. Let me share an illustration. It's a little humorous. Frank had to go to Chicago on business and he persuaded his brother to take care of his cat during this, his absence. Though his brother hated cats, he agreed. Upon his return, Frank called from the airport to check on the cat. Your cat died, the brother reported and then hung up. Brutal honesty. Frank was inconsolable. His grief was magnified by his brother's insensitivity, so he called again to express his pain. There was no need for you to be so blunt, he said. What was I supposed to say? Asked the perplexed brother. You could have broken the news gradually, explained Frank. You could have said the cat was playing on the roof. And then later in the conversation, you could have said he fell off. Then you could have said, he broke his leg. And when I come to pick him up, you could have said, I'm so sorry, your cat passed away during the night. You've got to be learned to be more tactful. By the way, how's mom doing? After a long pause, the brother replied, um, she's playing on the roof. <laughs> See, sometimes even our so-called tactfulness can be a cover-up for a lie. 
Don't play games with the truth, friends. Especially in a society where truth is regarded as relative, as I shared at the beginning of the message. People who are a part of God's kingdom, we as Christians, are different. We don't have to swear an oath to convince people that we will keep our word. Jesus said, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. So going on to a, a related topic, you might say, what is a superlative? What is a superlative? Webster says a superlative is superior to or excelling all other or others of the highest kind, quality, degree, et cetera, supreme, excessive or exaggerated. A superlative is when three or more things are compared. For instance, like tall, taller, tallest. I have three daughters. One's tall, another one's a little taller, and then there's the tallest one. I didn't name names. That's an example of a superlative. The tallest one is the superlative, right? Or you could say she is, what did I just say? Uh, okay. <clears throat> another phrase or another word or sentence you could use this for a way you could uh, talk about this is she's the prettiest princess in all the land. The prettiest, E-S-T. The prettiest princess in all the land. Well, that would mean there's at least three princesses, right? And she's the prettiest. Well, it could be two, I guess. Whatever. There's more than one. But it's... Subjective, this person thinks that this is the prettiest princess in all the land. Well, this other gentleman or person over here might think, well, no, I think that one's prettiest. Anyways, or another phrase you could use is, it's the best thing ever. Did you ever use that? Or you ever hear somebody say that? It's the best thing ever. Really? Is that true? Is that pepperoni pizza really the best thing ever? You don't like pepperoni pizza, apparently. No, but anyways, there's things that when people use phrases like that, really, is it true about whatever they're talking about? So that's what I'm talking about when talking about superlatives in our speech. I use them. We all use them. And there is a correct usage of them. I'm not saying it's wrong to use a superlative. Over usage of superlatives, I think, is. I'm, I'm, I'm throwing cautions out there. There's, it's dangerous. What is the danger? It tends to kill your credibility if you're frequently using superlative speech. It will eventually diminish your trustworthiness among your peers. I've experienced that already. And maybe you have too. You begin to wonder, what is true that's coming out of their mouth when they have to use all these superlatives in their speaking? Often, if you think about the usage, it's a lie. It's untruthful take it to the nth degree of what that what that phrase is actually saying okay i'm gonna move on maybe that was a bunny trail but i think it's related uh, to our topic this morning i'm gonna move on to number four in exposing the hypocritical distinctions by the scribes and the pharisees in their oaths and in commanding us to speak simply and truthfully the words of jesus have led many people to ask the question Did Jesus even forbid the use of legal oaths, like, say, in a courtroom? Or uh, uh, when people take begin a a public office of some sort, sort, they start that term by using an oath. 
You go to the courtroom, I've not been there for a long, long time. Maybe some of you have heard this, but this is kind of typically what you're asked to do if you are a witness in a courtroom. Do you solemnly swear that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God? You're supposed to raise your right hand, I think, and, and say, I swear, or whatever. But fortunately, in this land we live, we are also allowed to say, I affirm. I affirm that I will tell the truth. You don't have to swear in this country, in the courtroom. There are some arguments for allowing swearing of this type. Um, in fact, most of the Protestant friends uh, would subscribe to this, this uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, there's a, a large number of the Christian world today that would, that would go ahead and, and do a legal oath in a courtroom or they would run for public office and they would swear into their office with their, you know, when they're starting their, their term of service. So here's some arguments in support of swearing judicial oaths. Both Jesus and James qualified their statements concerning oaths. So in our text today, in Matthew 5, 34 and following, it says, swear not at all. It's immediately, follow, uh, immediately qualified by Jesus to refer to flippant and hypocritical oaths commonly voiced by people. He, he went on to say, don't swear by heaven, don't swear by the earth, don't swear by your head, all those kinds of things. So they look at that verse and, and they say, well, see, Jesus qualified his statement. He says, swear not at all, but he was speaking of these kinds of things. Then they say in James 5, verse 12, the command do not swear is also qualified by James to refer to the same kinds of meaningless oaths. Also, they want you to consider these following points, that God has sworn an oath to us. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, it says, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Then moving on, Matthew 26, Jesus was willing to answer under the oath before the Sanhedrin, Matthew 26, 63 and 64. But Jesus kept silent and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us, if you are the Christ, the son of God, Jesus said to him, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then moving on to Paul, let's say, well, Paul used oaths in his epistles, second Corinthians one Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you, I came no more to Corinth. Galatians 1.20. Now, concerning the things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. And lastly, in Revelation 10, 5 through 7, an angel of God swore an oath. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand, his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he said, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants, the prophets. So examples that they would use to argue that it's okay to swear uh, in a courtroom or something like that. <clears throat> 
but that Jesus would condemn flippant or profane or hypocritical oaths. Those that are used to make impressions, those used to spice up daily conversations, but were never intended to be kept. They would argue that Jesus is speaking against those kinds of oaths. As I said, a lot of Christians today do take the position of what we just talked about. And I'm going to also say the verses that I just read, I probably need to consider longer, and maybe some of you have already considered it. I don't have an answer about the verses that Paul wrote there, Paul's usage of of things. I, I don't understand that exactly. Maybe you do, and you can come to me and talk to me about it. But I prefer to take what I'm going to call the safe course. In other words, do exactly what Jesus said. To swear not at all. I had to think as I was putting this together of this phrase, this sentence that I often hear Dean Taylor use in his messages. He says, what if Jesus really meant every word he said? He, speaking typically of... Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this is something that Dean and Tanya had to ask themselves as they were coming, is still in the military and coming out about non-resistance and things like that. They were reading the scripture, they were reading the Sermon on the Mount, and, and that question came, what if Jesus really meant this? What if Jesus really meant? Swear not at all. At all. I prefer to take the safe course and to swear not at all. I'd like to share with you now some uh, comments, some thoughts from the Antonicene Fathers, writings that I pulled out of the Dictionary of Early Christian Writings that David Berceau put together, and uh, also share some thoughts uh, from Charles Spurgeon. First of all, we have Justin Martyr. And with regard, and this is back in the early church days, okay? So I always, I always look at the early, the Antonicene Fathers, and you cannot look at these things, as I've said often, cannot look at these, these are not script. This is not necessarily scripture. This is history. It's a history book. It's history, historical writings of what they did, what they practiced, what they believed, okay? So you need to still compare their writings or their, what they wrote. Does it line up with scripture? And with regard to our not swearing at all and always speaking the truth, he commanded as follows, swear not at all. Irenaeus said he commanded them not only not to swear falsely, but not even to swear at all. Clement of Alexandria, above all, let an oath on account of what is sold be far from you and let swearing on account of other things be banished. He also said the saying let your yes mean yes and your no, no, may be compared to the following saying, to admit a falsehood and to deny a truth is in no way lawful. Also, the saying in the 10th book of the laws of Plato agrees with the prohibition of swearing. Tertullian said, of perjury I am silent, since even swearing is not lawful. Origin. There are commandments contained in the gospel that allow no doubt whether they are to be observed according to the letter or not. For example, but I say unto you, swear not at all. Cyprian, we must not swear, 
Of this same matter, according to Matthew, I say unto you, swear not at all. That's the Antinicene fathers pretty much unanimously agreed that they should not swear at all. They didn't leave little deviations for spicing up their speech and not intending to keep their word. Charles Spurgeon's commentary on Matthew said, Charles says this, false swearing was forbidden of old, but every kind of swearing is forbidden now by the word of our Lord Jesus. He mentions several forms of oath and forbids them all. And then prescribes simple forms of affirmation or denial as all that his followers should employ. Notwithstanding much that may be advanced to the contrary, there is no evading the plain sense of this passage that every sort of oath, however solemn or true, is forbidden to the follower of Jesus. Whether in court of law or out of it, the rule is swear not at all. Yet in this Christian country, we have swearing everywhere, and especially among lawmakers. Our legislators begin their official existence by swearing. By those who obey the law of the Savior's kingdom, all swearing is set aside, that the simple word of affirmation or denial, calmly repeated, may remain as a sufficient bond of truth. A bad man cannot be believed on his oath, and a good man speaks the truth without an oath. To what purpose is the superfluous custom of legal swearing preserved? Christians should not yield to an evil custom, however great the pressure put upon them, but they should abide by the plain and unmistakable command of our Lord and King. Swear not at all. The righteousness of the kingdom is to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, they would often spice up their conversations, their statements with vows and oaths, just to be believed. But Christians are to be tr so truthful that our yes means yes, and our no means no. As disciples of Christ, we should be so truthful and trustworthy that it should not be necessary for us to swear oaths, or even just have to say, I promise, in order to be trusted. If I tell Verlin that he is welcome to come over to use my truck this afternoon and I'm not gonna charge him anything for rent, I promise Verlin, I shouldn't have to say that. I should just say what I said without that and he knows he's not gonna be charged rent. <clears throat> Can this be said of us when people know that we are Christians? Can others bank on our speech, what we had to say? And they bank on it, so to speak. When we say something, that we will do something, is it as good as done? May the words of our Lord remind us that even our speech reflects either honor or dishonor to the God whom we serve. Let's pray.